As we uh, continue in worship, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we'll focus this morning on verses 41 through 45. John chapter 6, let's read verses 41 through 45 and let us hear the word of God together. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Amen. Let us pray. Let us ask God's help as we come to the preaching of his word. Let's unite our hearts together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the gathering of the saints this Lord's Day. We thank you for the encouragement to our souls that it is to come together and to hear and to join in together the people of God singing your praises, to come together and to give attentiveness to Your Word, to be taught by it and instructed by it, to be exhorted, to be trained in righteousness and godliness by it. Father, as we come to the Gospel of John this morning, we pray that You would reveal to us glorious things from Your Word. We pray that You would cause us to desire the Word of God more than we desire gold and silver. We pray that You would turn our eyes away from vain things and worthless things and cause us to focus on Your your Word, Your truth. Father, draw near to us, we pray. Be gracious to us as Your people. We thank You for the grace that You have shown us, immeasurable grace, that You have placed us in Christ in whom we have received every spiritual blessing, in whom we have been seated in the heavenly places, we have been exalted with Christ, we've been raised to newness of life, the foretaste of the glory that is to come. Father, we pray that we would not grumble. We pray that we would be those that regardless of what Your lot is for us in our life, regardless of the painful things, the hard things, that we would always remember that You have not dealt with us as our sins deserve. That You have dealt with us in abundant kindness and grace. We pray that we would have humble hearts that love You, 
that love Your Word, that love to sit at the feet of Your Son and to be taught, to be transformed by His grace from one degree of glory to the next. We pray that You would do that this morning, Father. Change Your people from one degree of glory to the next. We pray that we would grow deeper in our thankfulness, deeper in our appreciation for Your grace, that we would stand in awe that we were made to be a guest at the feast of Christ, the feast of His Gospel. That we would stand amazed that the same love that spread the feast sweetly drew us in. Father, be gracious to those who are perishing and unbelieving. We pray that they would be sobered. That they would see in John 6, the reality of Your judgment for all who reject Christ. That they would turn to Christ while there is still time to find mercy. Father, You are able. You are the One who works salvation from first to last. Even the most hardened sinner is no obstacle to Your grace. We pray that You would save for Your glory's sake. Bless us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we turn again, picking up where we left off two weeks ago in our exposition of John's Gospel. We find ourselves in John chapter 6. This is, you remember, the day following the feeding of the 5,000. The crowds, after searching in vain on their side of the sea, get into boats and go on to the other side to Capernaum where they find Jesus and His disciples where... Jesus then confronts them for their unbelief and their wrong motives for seeking Him. And this is the discourse where He lays out before them that He is the bread of life. That while they are seeking for the bread that feeds only their stomachs, what they ought to be seeking from Him is Himself for eternal life and eternal nourishment. And so, We've worked our way through this, uh, breaking it up as we've gone. This morning we want to focus on verses 41 through 45. And so let's consider, first of all, our exposition, uh, what the text means, and then we'll turn secondly to doctrine deduced, how we are instructed by the text, and then thirdly we will turn to our application. So let's begin with our exposition here, beginning in verse 41. Picking up, John says, The Jews then complained or murmured against him or about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, remember, Jesus has been speaking to them words of eternal life. He has made himself available to him. He has made his grace available to them if they would but desire it and come to him by faith. But instead of coming to Him by faith, they murmur against His words. And it's very fascinating that the word used, the Greek word used for murmur here, is the same exact word that the Septuagint uses to describe Israel's murmurings against Moses in the wilderness. And so there are themes that John is picking up here regarding Israel's hardness of heart against Moses back then, And still, when the Messiah has come, their hardness of heart and unbelief towards Him. According to verse 43, 
it seems that as they are murmuring, they didn't outright contradict him. They, they didn't have the courage to speak against Christ openly. But it seems they whispered amongst themselves um, contempt of his words. Whispering among themselves that these are hard words that this man speaks to us. Now, why did they grumble? John tells us the specific thing it was that Jesus said that caused them to grumble. It is because of His words, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They are offended at His claim to having a heavenly origin. They they have heard of angels coming from heaven to earth. They know that Elijah was taken up from earth to heaven, but never has it been heard that a man came to earth from heaven? I mean, even the greatest of the prophets, even Moses himself, was but a man of the dust, just like Adam. And just like everyone else. And they are offended that Christ would claim anything different from Himself. They are obviously ignorant of His divine origin, and thus they interpret His words as the words of a a madman. And so verse 42, they then seek to justify their complaining. They don't just murmur, but they give reasons for their murmuring. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, or excuse me, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, mark something. Clearly, they understood. When Jesus said, I have come down from heaven, clearly they understood that to be a claim of supernatural origin. They understood Him to be saying something that He came into this world some way other than the ordinary conception and birth. And they're correct in that. That is what Jesus meant. They understood his meaning. They simply don't believe there's any way it could be true of Christ. They say to themselves, we know his father. We know his mother. Mary and Joseph. This is the boy that we saw. Remember, these are his countrymen. This is the boy we saw at, at the carpenter's desk. And they're probably thinking to themselves... He might, this Jesus might be able to fool others in Jerusalem or Samaria because they don't know where he's from, but we know where he's from. But they're mistaken. It's true, they know the man who was reputed to be his earthly father. But ironically, in claiming to know his father, they show that they are entirely ignorant of knowing his true father from heaven. They know nothing of the virgin birth. They know nothing of the angels' announcements of the Savior to be born into the world. And because of their hardness of heart, they are not interested to ask. That's very significant. This passage is about their unbelief. They they don't come to Him asking, how can these things be? They simply make up their minds that these things cannot be so. They look at Christ and they see a man just like every other man. And Christian, there's a lesson there, by the way, for us. A principle. How often men use the humiliation of Christ, 
the fact that the word, the eternal word of God became like us, how often men use that as a, an excuse for why he therefore can't be divine. You hear that often, and men pit the true humanity of Christ, which we don't deny for a moment, but they pit that against the fact that, well, if he's like us, then he cannot be more than us. And thus they, they willfully ignore and flip the glory of the gospel on its head because the whole glory of the gospel is that he who is in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, becoming a man for us and for our salvation. But they, they stand behind the excuse of this is just an ordinary man and therefore his claim must be false. Verse 43. Therefore, Jesus answered and said to them, he knows their thoughts, he knows their murmurings, he therefore said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, this is very similar, you remember verse 37 when they were unbelieving and they demanded a sign. What sign do you show us that we may see and believe? And just as in verse 37, when he refused to let them feel a smug satisfaction as though their unbelief somehow foils his plans, so also here in verse 44, he again exposes their moral condition and he declares to them, the why of their murmuring. He's not surprised by it. He's not caught off guard. He says to them, you are murmuring and not coming to me for life because you are not being drawn by my Father. And notice, he doesn't just say, you won't come to me. He says, you cannot come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's very significant. Probably most of us, at least the older generation, um, remember from school the distinction when a student would ask the teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And what, what does the teacher respond? I don't know, can you? And then they offer the, the correction, you mean, may I go to the bathroom? Because can I is a question of my ability or my power. May I is a question of permission. And Jesus Market does not say here, no one may come to me. As though they are not welcome to come to him. He's already made that extremely clear. He says that whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. They are welcome to come to him. They are invited to come to him. But he says to them, but no one can come to me. Because he's making a statement about human inability. No sinner is able or has the power to come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws him. 
It's amazing how often we find Jesus telling unbelievers about the necessity of divine grace. You remember Nicodemus, chapter 3. Nicodemus, in order to even see the kingdom, you must. Necessity. You must what? Be born again from above by the Spirit who blows like the wind. Jesus is consistent. He will say to these crowds in verse 63, if you just scan down, He will say to these grumbling, unbelieving crowds, it is the Spirit who gives life The flesh, that is your natural disposition as a slave to sin, the flesh is no help at all. The only way a sinner is going to come to Christ is if the Father draws him to Christ. Now, let's understand this. Jesus is not denying here that fallen man has a will. He's not denying here that sinners have the ability to act upon choice and to make choices. He's pointing out what is often overlooked, and that is this, that that will that makes choices is not a neutral will, but rather a will chooses according to what is most desirable to it. And behind every human will is a depraved nature that loves darkness. As one commentator put it, he said, to talk about fallen man exerting his will is to ignore the state of the man behind the will. Just as surely as water cannot flow uphill, fallen man cannot act contrary to his love of darkness. He is enslaved to darkness. He is a captive of the devil to do his will, which is why there must be a sovereign, powerful act of the Father in his heart in order to make him willing. What Jesus here describes as the drawing of the Father. The drawing of the Father. Now, I want to spend just a minute. What is this drawing? Most of us in this room are probably convinced of what this drawing is, what it's referring to. I want to deal with an objection, just for clarity, since we're here, there would be no better time than now to deal with it. What does Jesus mean by no man can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him? Is this a particular effectual drawing, or is this a general drawing that God does for everyone indiscriminately that brings them partway to Christ? One of the most common objections that I have ever heard raised in response to verse 44 by people who don't like what I say it means, one of the most common objections is to quote John chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, and I, if I am lifted up, referring to the cross, I will draw all peoples to myself. And they point to John 12, 32, and they say, essentially they say, ha, right? Caught you guys. 
You Calvinists are right as far as it goes in saying that yes, it's necessary for someone to be drawn by the Father in order to come to Christ. We're not denying that. But where you go wrong is you say that it is an effectual drawing that the Father only does for some because clearly here they say in John 12, Jesus says He will draw everybody to Himself. Now, several problems with that. Number one is the problem of context. Here's a hermeneutical lesson. Just because the same word, and it is the same word, just because the same word is used in two different places, especially when they are six chapters apart from each other, you can't just drop in and assume that Jesus is talking about the same exact thing there as He is here. In John 12... The decisive thing, contextually, that's overlooked, is that the decisive thing that prompted Jesus' words, I will draw all peoples to myself, is the fact that in verse 20 and 21, Greeks, Gentiles, seek to see Jesus. That's very significant. You can't just ignore that and drop in and act like this has to be what John 6 is talking about. Gentiles, a pivotal moment in John's Gospel, seek to have an audience with Christ. And Jesus says, now has my hour come. And when He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to Myself, He's not talking about it in the sense that He is here in John 6. He means I'm going to draw Jew and Gentile to Myself. That the Gospel, My cross, is going out everywhere in the world. Secondly, okay, so that's context. Another thing, in John 12, Jesus doesn't say, if I be lifted up, my Father will draw all people to Myself. He says, I will draw all people to Myself. Which again is different from what He says in John 6, which should at least make us wonder whether He's maybe talking about something different. But thirdly, Last reason, perhaps most significantly, is right here in the context of John chapter 6. Okay. You don't even have to go out of John 6 to see what Jesus meant. Look at verse 45. Verse 45 is Jesus' explanation of what this drawing is. He says, It is written in the prophets, and he quotes Isaiah here, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. So think about it. Let's do some logic with Jesus' statements here. Out of everyone who is taught by the Father, how many of them come to Jesus, according to Jesus? All of them. Right? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. There are no, there's no one who drops out. Now look at verse 44. So everyone that the Father teaches comes to Jesus. What does verse 44 say about those who come to Jesus? No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. What's that? That's eternal life. He's not just talking about general resurrection. So if you follow Jesus' logic, everyone who learns from the Father comes to Christ, and everyone who comes to Christ is raised up to eternal life on the last day. 
If you want to argue that this drawing is something that the Father does for everyone indiscriminately, if you were consistent, you would have to embrace a form of universalism. That everyone will be saved. Because Jesus says, all who are taught by my Father come to me, and all who come to me I will raise up at the last day. There's nowhere in that chain where you can insert the possibility of some or even many being drawn to Christ who don't actually end up being saved by Christ. Lastly, verse 45. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, I'm next sermon on John, Lord willing, and it'll probably be two weeks from now because next Sunday, I think... I'll preach on the diaconate for our, uh, our installation. But next sermon in John, I plan to open up how Jesus describes this drawing here from verse 45. But suffice it for now to say that he quotes here from Isaiah 54. And suffice it to say that this drawing is an internal teaching and persuasion from the Father. Okay? This... This teaching by the Father, when He says that they will all be taught of God, He doesn't just mean the external proclamation of the Gospel. Right? He can't mean that because there are many, including these crowds, who heard that and yet do not come to Christ. He's talking about a different being taught of the Father. This is an internal persuasion that the Father works by His Spirit in the sinner to make them willing to come to Christ. And we know it's an internal persuasion because verse 46, he clarifies, not that anyone has seen the Father. He doesn't want them to be confused as though he's saying they should expect some extra revelation or vision from the Father to be taught by Christ, or taught by the Father. He's not talking about that, but rather he's talking about an internal persuasion in the sinner in which God gives the sinner a new heart and a new inclination so that he desires the light. And that's, that's very important. We'll open that up next time, Lord willing. That he describes regeneration here as the sinner being taught. That is, this drawing, contrary to the caricature so many people want to say about what we actually believe, This drawing is not a drawing that bypasses the faculties of the sinner. It's not something that, it's not a drawing that compels the sinner to come to Christ against his will, but rather it's a drawing that changes the sinner's intellect and will so that he comes or she comes most willingly to Christ. So we'll close there for our exposition at verse 45, and we'll pick up next time in verses 45 and in 46, Lord willing. But let's turn now to our doctrine deduced. That was something of what the text means, how we should understand it, how it fits within the broader context of John's gospel. But let's turn now to our doctrine. How are we instructed from this text doctrinally? And there are many things. John chapter 6 as a whole Even these smaller sections we've been taking are chock full of 
lessons and doctrinal instruction regarding things like our doctrine of man, the doctrine of election, effectual calling, all of those things. This morning, I want to open up two things, and I've kept it a bit briefer than usual. Two, doctr- two things that were instructed in doctrinally. One has to do with our doctrine of man, and the second has to do with the glory of the new covenant. Okay? So two things, our doctrine of man and the glory of the new covenant. Let's start, first of all, number one, I want to talk about the distinction. This, has, this is in the, the realm of our doctrine of man. I want to open up just for a moment here the distinction between moral inability and physical inability. Okay? And some of you are here, you've heard those uh, terms, you're familiar with them. Others of you, those are new to you, and that's fine. That's why we teach on them and we open them up. But it's very important that we understand rightly and that we explain rightly what the Bible does and does not mean when it says that the natural man cannot come to Christ. Because there's uh, ample room for misunderstanding and misapplication. And just for clarity, Jesus is not the only one who uses this kind of language. For instance, Romans 8, verse 7 and 8, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. And then verse 8, he says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, so you've got Paul. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not just that they do not or will not. They cannot. And you've got Christ saying, those who are in the flesh cannot come to me. And some hear those words, or at least they hear what I think they mean. And they think to themselves, well, if sinners cannot do something, then how are they responsible when they don't do it? Right? That's a good question. Deserves a good answer. If you take the example of my, one of my sons. If I say to my son, son, I know that you're you know, three feet tall. You cannot. There's no way that you can jump over our house. But son... Unless you jump over our house, I'm going to punish you. You would say to me, that's not fair, right? Because you can't hold them accountable for something that he's physically unable to do. And so how can Christ hold unbelievers accountable? And how, at the same time, are unbelievers responsible to come to Christ when the Bible says they they can't do it? Well, herein lies the answer. We must distinguish between different types of inability. There are some kinds of inability that do excuse our responsibility, and there are other types of inability that do not. Right? So the example of my son, again. Even if everything in him wants to jump over our house, And even if he tries and tries, 
The reason that he cannot do it is not owing to a lack of desire in him to do it, but the reason is owing to the fact that he is physically unable, right? And therefore, he doesn't get in trouble for not jumping over the house because his will is there. He wants to. His desire is there. He just doesn't have the physical makeup due to things outside his control. That's what we call physical inability. And that is not what Jesus means here when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If what Jesus meant here was, you can't come to me because God has not equipped you with the physical faculties necessary to exercise faith, Or if he meant, you cannot come to me because God has not given you the intellectual capacity to understand and to believe things, if that's what Jesus meant, it would be wrong to hold men accountable for not believing. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Sinners, fallen sinners... right? Men after the fall, just as much as before the fall, continue to be Will, willing creatures in the sense that they have a will, in the sense that they have desires. Just as much after the fall as before the fall, sinners are furnished by God with all the physical faculties and capacities they need to think and evaluate and to believe and trust things. But what happened in the fall is not that those faculties were destroyed, but rather our faculties became enslaved to sin. After the fall, man still has a will. He still has the ability to act upon choice, but his entire nature has become corrupt so that he wills all the wrong things. And that is what we call a moral inability. The sinner is morally incapable of seeking God and coming to Christ, not due to any physical deficiency, but due to his own love of sin and his own hatred of God. It's like, to give you an example, it's like um, Genesis 37 verse 4. When Moses says of Joseph's brothers that when Joseph's brothers came in and they saw that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of them, it says they could not speak a kind word to, to Joseph because they hated him. Now think about it. What does that mean? They could not speak a kind word to Joseph. Does that mean all of a sudden their mouths were broke? No. They could speak just fine. But they could not speak kindly to him because they hated him. It's a a real inability that exists because of our contrary desire. We cannot and we will not choose that which we hate. And by nature, sinners what? They hate God. They hate the truth. 
That's why sinners cannot come to Christ apart from the Father's powerful work in their hearts because sinners can't change who they are. That's not something that we have within our own power to just become something different than we are. We need God by His Spirit to overcome who we are. To renew our dead heart by His Spirit. To renew our nature so that we now desire the very one that we once hated. That's how gracious regeneration is. you, You hear it sometimes. Believe in Christ and God will cause you to be born again. As though regeneration is something that God kind of just puts the cherry on top of an already good work that we started. As though God saw, like, they've made one good step towards me, now let's finish the process. That is not what regeneration is. Regeneration happens before our believing. And it is when God does not come to someone who's taken the right step towards Him. It's when God comes to a sinner who hates God, who is not seeking God, and He gives us not what we deserve, but what we need. And He changes the cold, dead heart that hates God into a heart of flesh that loves God. That's the first thing. First thing that we're instructed here regarding that important distinction of a natural inability versus moral inability. And that brings us to the second point of doctrine. And this is really a bigger, a bigger picture point here, but I wanted to bring it out. We're instructed from this text as well of the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Okay? We're instructed of the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And I'm getting this from verse 45 and 46. Jesus says in verse 45, quoting Isaiah 54... They will all be taught of God. You go back to the context of Isaiah 54, verse 13. It's the children of God. They will all be taught of God. And Jesus asserts in the face of their unbelief, just as He did in verse 37, when He said, all whom the Father gives to Me will come to Me, Here again, he asserts to them the unthwartable purpose of God. That God will save all his elect. That all of them will come to Christ and not a single one will be lost. Why and how can Jesus say that? That there is coming a day in which it will be said of God's new covenant people, they will all be taught of God. It is because, as Hebrews 8.6 says, the new covenant is built upon better promises than the old covenant. I'm tempted to say the primary. To be careful, I should say one of the primary. One of the primary purposes of the Old Covenant was to show sinners the Old Covenant's insufficiency and to show sinners our need of a better covenant built on better promises. 
I can't remember the term. Someone called the old covenant. Was it intentional obsoleteness? Something like that. It was intentionally put in place by God to become obsolete. It was given to show that the old covenant wasn't enough to cause us to look to a better covenant. Okay? The old covenant, one of the main, main reasons it was put in place is to show sinners that it is insufficient and that we are undone unless we are given a better covenant with a better mediator. I mean, and this isn't just, you know, a New Test or whatever you want to call it, a covenant theologian looking back on the old covenant. This is how the old covenant describes itself. You think of Jeremiah 31, the most famous uh, New Covenant promise text. And Jeremiah is contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant that's coming. And Jeremiah doesn't even call the Old Covenant the Old Covenant. He simply calls it the covenant which you broke. Emphasis on that word broke. The old covenant was a covenant that could be broken by human unfaithfulness and disobedience because it was a covenant whose blessings depended on the obedience of the people. Just like with Adam in the garden. Adam, if you do this, you will live. In the day that you disobey, you will die. That's fine. That, that works arrangement, do this and I'll bless you. That's fine if people have hearts that love God and fear God and love His Word, but that arrangement doesn't work when you have unregenerate people. As Israel and their history proves to us again and again. I mean, over and over in the Old Testament, you have Moses and Joshua and the prophets crying out to Israel, giving the external call, Israel, you need to circumcise your hearts. You need a new heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Right? That's the call. Within the Old Covenant, Israel, you need a new heart. But what's the problem? They can't do it. Jesus, John 3, that which is flesh is flesh. John 6, 63, the Spirit, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so, the story of the Old Covenant is God can plead with unregenerate sinners all day long. Circumcise your hearts. Have a change of heart. Serve the Lord. Love the Lord. But until God does in them what they cannot do for themselves, they will remain hard-hearted and rebellious against God. And Christian, that is exactly what the new covenant remedies. That is exactly and precisely the greater glory of the new covenant over the old. Because according to 2 Corinthians 3, while the old administration was merely an administration of condemnation because it told sinners what they ought to do but didn't give them the power to do it, the new covenant is an administration of life. Because it's the administration of the Spirit 
and of power. That's one word that could describe the difference of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is power. The Old Covenant calls for what sinners ought to do. It's the New Covenant bought by the blood of Christ that secures the very internal blessings and changes that enable the people of God to be what God calls them to be. Right? Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do as it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of human flesh. Christian, listen. The new covenant secures and guarantees for the elect the very thing which Israel needed, but most of them lacked. The new covenant secures our regeneration, our faith, our being taught by the Father, as Jesus says here, so that we most certainly know the Lord savingly and sincerely. And it secures it. Notice, notice, the new covenant secures those blessings for all of God's people. It's another difference and the greater glory of the church over old covenant Israel. This is one text. I'm a Baptist. You know that that I would point to to say here is evidence that the new covenant people of God is not just a continuation of Israel as a mixed people where you have a remnant within Israel who are regenerate, but rather the church is that remnant. Those who know the Lord, they shall all be taught of God. All that, all that to say this, Christian. Read Jeremiah 31 this afternoon if you have time. After Jeremiah compares or calls the Old Covenant that covenant which, which you broke, he then goes on, God through him goes on to declare, but the days are coming in which I'm making a new covenant. Not like the one that your fathers broke and you have broken. And God says, this covenant is not going to be one broken by my people. Because its blessings are going to be procured and secured for my people by the perfect work of my Son. And God says, no longer am I merely going to stretch out my hand to a stiff-necked people and call to them to return, but rather, I am going to circumcise their hearts through the death of my Son. I will put my spirit within them. I will cause them to walk in my statutes. And Jeremiah 31, the very end, they shall all know me from the least of them even to the greatest. Christian, the new covenant cannot fail to save all of its people because its blessings depend not on our obedience, but because of the perfect obedience of Christ. He lived and died not only so that all who trust Him will be forgiven of sin. That's gracious enough. He lived and died to secure that very gift of the Spirit and the very gift of faith so that it was certain that we will believe in Christ. We'll talk about that in our application. Let's let's turn in closing to our application. I have two things here. 
two things that I'd like to encourage us in from this text. Number one is this. Christian, take renewed confidence from the unfailing purpose of God to save his elect. Take renewed confidence and fresh courage from the fact that God's purpose is unchangeable and unfordable to save all his people. I know, Christian, this is a, this is a practical truth. And we see Jesus applying it practically. I know how discouraging the face of unbelief is. When you feel like you, you've talked and you've shared Christ with people and you've tried not perfectly but sincerely to exemplify a godly life before them and it just seems to you like it's having zero effect on any of them. They're not believing. And, and you feel at times like Elijah. Lord, they've torn down your altars. Israel is apostate, and I alone am left. And you feel at times like, why is no one believing? It seems. I mean, everyone's just bowing the knee to the bales of this world, they're bowing the knee to carnality. It's even more discouraging when they not only don't believe you, but they mock you and they grumble, just like these crowds were doing with Jesus. And they say to you, your, your gospel is a fairy tale. Your God is a fiction. Christian, follow the example of the Lord Jesus here and rest your head on the soft pillow that God's eternal purpose to save his elect is an unthwartable purpose. He will not fail. He cannot fail any more than God can lie. The Father will not allow one drop of Christ's blood to be spilt in vain. All those for whom Christ died will come to Christ. Even the, well, such an encouragement. Even the most hardened persecutor, like Paul the Apostle, is absolutely no obstacle to the sovereign grace of God. I mean, 1 Timothy 1.15, we heard it last week. This saying is trustworthy and true, that Christ, came in, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost he goes on, he was a persecutor of the church, unworthy to be called an apostle, and the moment the risen Christ confronted him, the scales fell off and he was arrested in his tracks and he became a Christian. The Lord reminded Elijah, you're not alone, but I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. And Christian, we have the trustworthy word of the Lord that from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, Christ has a people. Paul was discouraged in this regard in Acts 18. You're probably familiar. He's discouraged. It seems he was fearful for some reason in Corinth. And the Lord comes to Paul in a vision and he says to Paul, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. 
for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, Paul didn't know who they were. It probably turned out being different people than he thought would be the people of God. But Christ encouraged Paul's heart by telling him, just go on speaking. Be faithful. Be bold. I have, you may not see it, but I have in this city many who are my people. And they will hear my voice and they will come to me because my Father will teach them. And so Christian, be encouraged. Don't grow discouraged and go on obeying the Lord, speaking the word with boldness. Second application, final application. Christian, this is just for your own meditation and your own thanksgiving to God. Very simple application. Christian, give praise to God. Give praise to God. Because your salvation is of the Lord from first to last. From eternity past to eternity future, the banner above it all of your soul is that salvation is of the Lord. You were once too one of those of whom it could rightfully be said, you cannot come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. You you remember those days. Probably, unless you were converted very early, sometimes it's challenging to remember. Many of us remember how in love with darkness we were. And and there, there was no question mark when I went from darkness to light. And you can testify that just as Paul says in Ephesians 2, I was a child of wrath just like the rest of mankind. And I was dead in trespasses and sins, and I was following the the prince of the power of the air until one day suddenly it was different. And why was it different? But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive and raised us up together with Christ. That's what's happened in your heart if you're a Christian. That the Christ that you once regarded as a foolish Savior, or perhaps you regarded Him as a harsh, demanding Savior. I don't want to have to submit my life to all these things Jesus says the way my life ought to be. All of a sudden, because of the work of God in your heart, that same Christ became to you the wisdom of God and the goodness of God. Christ, who you hated, became lovely. Just like Paul. Hated Christ. Hated Christians. And then suddenly he becomes one of them. Never to turn back. Christian, just as Christ told Peter, he could say to each and every one of us, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The gospel is of grace through and through. Right? We, we sing that stands on amazing grace. "'Twas grace that made my heart to fear 
and twas grace my fears relieved. Right? Newton's talking about even before I had union with Christ, it was grace at work within me teaching me to learn to fear. To fear my condemnation. That was the grace of God at work. And then it was the same grace that revealed Christ to me that relieved that grace. Christian, that's true of every aspect. After you become converted and before you're a Christian. That God has dealt with us graciously. It's not only the grace of God that grants me the forgiveness of sins. It was the grace of God that grabbed a hold of me when I didn't want forgiveness. And made me desire that which I should desire. It was grace that caused me to relinquish my self-righteousness, my hypocrisy, my hatred of God. All of those things are of grace. And so Christians... Simply this, praise God for it. Praise God for His love that did not lay hold of us on account of our righteousness, and therefore it is a love that will not let us go because we fail Him. Aren't you thankful the new covenant is not just a one and done, sorry, you blew it. Covenant is broken. It'll never happen for the child of God because Christ is our surety. And it's built on a better mediator and better promises. He who taught us at first to fear God and to come to Christ is he who will be faithful to continue his work. Christian, take hope in these doctrines. That because God purposed to begin this work in me, because the Father taught me, and because I came to Christ, and because still to this day the evidence of that work is there because I'm still clinging to Christ, I have confidence as a Christian that God will fulfill His purposes towards me. And I will be raised up on the last day. All because of the grace of the new covenant bought by the blood of Christ. Christian, let us bless God for His grace. Let us respond by walking in the fear of God. Let us do all that we do with gratitude and thankfulness for His boundless goodness and grace towards us. Let's pray. Father, thank You that salvation is of the Lord. If it were not, and if it depended upon us, we would be the same story as Old Covenant Israel. We thank You that in the New Covenant You have supplied the power that the Old Covenant did not supply. That you, have grant, that you have commanded what you will and that you have granted that which you have commanded. Father, thank you for the administration of the Spirit in the new covenant and its superior glory. That they shall all be taught of God. That in Christ you are creating a better Israel. You're creating a 
true people for your own possession. A people who will be a kingdom of priests. A people who are holy as you are holy because you have supplied to us in Christ everything that we need. Father, thank you that the new covenant is a gracious covenant. That in it is found abundant forgiveness of sin. That in it we find a gracious, compassionate Savior who came to save His people from their sins. Who patiently works within us grace, conforming us to His image. Dealing with us in love, in redemption. Father, thank You for Christ. We pray that we would have more love to Him. Pray that we would give thanks for Him. We pray that You would teach us and instruct us, encourage our hearts, cause us to have the joy of the Lord. That we would rejoice in the truth as it is in Jesus. Father, again we pray, be merciful to the unconverted. Cause them to flee from the wrath to come. Cause them to fear so that Your grace might relieve their fears through the Gospel. Train them by Your law and Your Word to be afraid of Your judgment and the wrath to come. And cause the Gospel to be sweet music to their ears. We pray... Be merciful, we ask. Be with us today. Be with us in our fellowship, our meal together. Be with our brother Thaddeus in our afternoon service as he instructs us. We pray that this Lord's Day would be a feast for our souls. We pray that we would meet with God. That we would go forth from here walking after the renewed image of God as you are creating us anew in Christ. Bless us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. 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 You are dismissed.